0: Hello everybody and welcome back to the show. This is the penultimate episode of this series on Brandon Tina. But before we get started, I want to share a few things about this podcast with you. This is an independent, ad-free, one-woman show, which means I depend on you, the listeners, to help keep us going. Our fifth anniversary just passed. And there were two things about the show that I never wanted to change. I wanted this to be an experience that would never be interrupted by advertisements. We may get interrupted by my sidetrackiness or off-topic meanderings, but never for an ad for kitty litter or manscaping products. Now, I don't really read the reviews that the show gets very often, and because mostly they're positive, I regularly receive one-star reviews for being too annoying or opinionated. And those are just the listeners who just don't get the show that this was meant to be something that was an easy listening kind of a thing, something to help you fall asleep. That's what I liked podcasts for. Those of you who listen, you already know that the title of the show has the word dreaming in it because my concept was for this to be something to help you go to sleep. That's why the music in the background is very low. I try not to be too loud or shouty when I'm recording. I don't use very many audio recordings or 911 calls. And if I do, I make sure to control the volume to ensure that your ears don't bleed. And it's also one of the reasons why I shy away from paid advertisements. I've had ads blast through my earbuds and they startle me. It's also why I try to make the episodes more than an hour long. So there's plenty of time for you to listen and to doze off. Same goes for the Patreon episodes. So there may be some of you who are listening right now that didn't know all of that. The content, the story, the crime, the case is secondary to being like the slow jams of podcasting. I rely solely on Patreon subscribers to offset the cost and time that it takes me to produce the show. But I also depend on ratings, reviews, and word of mouth to find new listeners. You can also help by donating to the podcast through PayPal using the email CaliforniaPod at gmail.com. So, now that I've cleared that up, and that was just prompted by a review that I got, something about me not giving away any gifts and that the show is boring. Well, it's kind of meant to be a little bit boring. That way, I can send you all off into dreamland. All right. Enough of that. Let's get to the show. I need to provide you with this warning. These episodes may contain graphic details, including gun violence, sexual violence, sexual abuse, and strong language and is not suitable for young listeners. Listener discretion is advised. Sources for this story include the book All She Slash He Wanted by Aphrodite Jones, as well as online articles and documents that I will have listed in the show notes. All right, let's get to the episode. If you haven't listened to the first four parts of the series, pause this episode here and listen to episodes 226 through 229 first, and then you'll be caught up and ready to listen to this one. In the last part, we left off with learning about the history of one Of the two soon-to-be killers in this case Tom Nissen he had a pretty rough upbringing like many of the young people in this case and it seems to stem from this generational rough upbringing cycle Tom wound up married to a young girl named Candy who was a teenage mom of two and Tom was not the father of the first child and might have been the father of the second one. They had a rough relationship, wrought with infidelity on both of their parts, but they had this insanely crazy love for one another with those can't live with them, can't live without them vibes. Tom was finally sent to state prison for the first time in September of 1992, but he was released on parole early, just eight months later in May of 1993 and that would be just seven months before he became involved in a brutal triple murder that rocked the tiny community of Humboldt Nebraska and it's an aspect of this case that makes this whole story that much more heartbreaking to learn that this young man should have been in state prison when the lives of three very young people were violently cut short on the very last day of 1993. We'll pick up the story from there. Tom Nissen had been sentenced to eight years in prison after he was convicted of arson and assault, and it would mark the first time that he was sent into the state prison system for a substantial amount of time. As luck would have it, Tom was paroled and released from prison in May of 1993. While he was locked up, he started thinking about turning his life around when he did get out. And when he was released so early from such a lengthy term, it was a second chance at life for him. And he didn't want to squander that. He was only 21 years old. He would turn 22 that October. He had figured that the best thing for him was to go back to college And he wanted to get back together with his wife, Candy, and his maybe kids. For most of the time that Tom was in prison, for at least seven out of the eight months, he had not consumed any alcohol or drugs, and he was hoping to continue to stay clean and sober after his release. But he fell off the paddy wagon just one month before he was paroled. Whether this was by phone or during an in-person visit at the prison, I don't know. But it was sometime in April of 1993 that Candy admitted to Tom that she was carrying on an affair with another man. The news sent Tom running straight back to drugs, which weren't difficult to come by in prison. So when he was released a month later, he was not clean and sober as he had once hoped he would be. I don't know what state prison Tom was in. There are 10 of them in Nebraska. One of them is for women, so it could have been any one of the other nine. So when Tom did get out, he had to find his way back to Fall City. He eventually got there and began looking for candy because when he showed up at her place, she wasn't there. He pinned a note to her front door telling her where to find him, that he was at a friend's house. Candy did show up sometime late into the evening. But she was with this boyfriend of hers that she was seeing, along with the two kids, and their names were Bobby and Tiffany. They were in their car seats in the back, fast asleep. Because that's just great parenting, to be bringing the boyfriend along with the kids in the middle of the night to visit their ex-con, maybe daddy. I don't like to get too judgy on parents a lot of times. I try to just stay neutral but yeah this time I had to say something and I'm probably going to say more about some of the other parenting that goes on as we reach the climax of this story Candy could have left boyfriend at home with the kids and gone to talk to Tom her husband on her own but she chose not to Tom wanted to come back and live with Candy and the kids of course the place was a pigsty and she did not want Tom to see it in that condition. He needed to talk to Candy privately. Aphrodite Jones referred to it as sweet talk, but I don't see this man being very sweet at all. So to me, he wanted to talk privately to manipulate Candy and talk her into what he wanted and needed, and he couldn't do it with boyfriend within earshot. Tom told Candy that he wasn't worried about the condition of the house that all he wanted was to be with her again. It only took a matter of minutes for Candy to just melt like butter. They embraced and she went back to the car. She made up some bull story about why she had to go. She grabbed the kids and sent boyfriend on his way. So later, when they did arrive back at home, Tom was hit with the horrific stench of the house. He said it smelled like a landfill. I've personally never smelt a landfill, but I imagine it's not pleasant. Tom said he nearly vomited when he walked in. This I can imagine because one of my 2020 COVID binges was the TV show Hoarders, but none of that mess turned either one of them off from having sex in the only semi-decent spot in the house, the sofa. Just to give you an idea, of how bad this house actually was the day after tom got back from prison candy who ironically had a job as a housekeeper of all things at a place called the heartland inn which is about 20 minutes south of fall city in the next state over in hiawatha kansas i hope i said that right hiawatha kansas she and tom found someone to keep an eye on the kids while Tom spent the whole day working on cleaning up the one bedroom house that Candy and the kids had been living in filth in. Eight hours later, Tom had dumped 21 garbage bags full of stuff that he had gotten rid of from their tiny house. Later on, when speaking about his cleanup effort, Tom stated there was green stuff growing out of the carpet. There was not a clean dish in the house. I had to throw away most of the dishes because they wouldn't come clean. There was bread in the kitchen with roaches crawling all over it. The bed had been pissed on so many times. I sprayed it over and over with Lysol, but it didn't really help. The thing that angered Tom the most, however, had nothing to do with the condition of the home. What really got to him was the fact that Candy told him that she misplaced her wedding ring somewhere at the Heartland Inn while she was working. Tom ended up finding the wedding ring hidden someplace in their entertainment center. Another thing happened while Tom was cleaning and sorting through what was salvageable and what was not. There was a knock at the door. It was two law enforcement investigators. The visit was triggered by a call to Child Protective Services regarding a report that somebody made asserting that the children in the home were being neglected. They were there to remove the kids from the house. While Tom didn't want to place the full responsibility for the condition of the home on Candy because apparently she wasn't shown how to take care of a house when she was raised, but... Unless Candy has some other mental health issues going on that have an impact on her ability to function as a normal adult, then I call BS on that excuse. Yes, some people aren't raised to know how to take care of a family and a home, but you don't have to be a genius to put a sponge and soap to some dishes, to keep some food airtight and cool, and how to take out the garbage, how to not let your kids soil the bed. I mean, Maybe if people spent less time hanging out at gas stations, allegedly, and if they're grown enough to make kids, then yeah, it's not a lack of being raised properly, it's laziness. Along with other factors, possibly poverty, being overwhelmed with two young children, children having children, and Candy being young herself, and a dad who's in jail, and balancing that with her job, and somehow she managed to have time for a boyfriend. I mean, yeah, it, I think it has more to do with laziness than anything else. I mean, come on. She has a job as a freaking housekeeper. So I know damn well that this girl knew how to clean. I think she was just being lazy and Tom was just busy trying to come up with excuses for her lazy behavior. The visit from the police was so upsetting for Tom that He had a breakdown and through his tears, he asked the two officers if they could please just give him a chance to get the place back into a livable, safe and clean condition for the children. Luckily for him, they decided that they would just give him a citation for child neglect and they gave him five days to make all the necessary corrections. Tom managed to get the house back into a state that was acceptable. So when the officers did come back, the children were able to stay in the home. However, this whole experience, almost losing the children, the horrifying conditions of the house, it was all too much for Tom and his feelings for Candy just weren't the same anymore. Though I don't think his feelings were ever all that great. I think there was just some lust and like I said, this can't live with them, can't live without them thing going on. But after the whole thing with the police and the house and the terrible mess that it was in, there was nearly nothing left between them anymore. The only time that they would have sex was if they got blackout drunk so that they could wake up the next morning and not remember anything. Most nights Tom said he cried himself to sleep. About a month after Tom was released from prison. Sometime in June of 1993, Candy told Tom that she was pregnant with her third child. She swore on a stack of Bibles that she hadn't been with anybody else but him, but he wasn't willing to simply take her word for it. And mind you, she showed up to meet him the very night that he got back from prison with her boyfriend. So come on, please. Like I said, he wasn't going to just take her word for it. They went ahead and got a bigger place, and he was just going to keep his fingers crossed that things would work themselves out. Tom, ultimately, his plan was to have himself DNA tested for paternity, and if it turned out that he was the father, then it would make things a little bit easier to deal with. At least that was his thinking. I don't think that there is anything that could have made this relationship any better. In August of 1993, Tom's mom and stepdad, Susan and Bart, visited Fall City for the town's annual summer event called Cobblestone Days. It was a fun change of pace for the everyday excitement of the gas station, right? This was like the quintessential Middle American festival. A beauty pageant, carnival rides, an ice cream social, a petting zoo a fishing contest, event vendors, food, a bake sale, a demolition derby, a tractor pull, and the final day of the festival is topped off with the parade. For the residents of Fall City, this event is just about as important as any holiday. Shortly after Tom's mom, Susan, had visited, Candy decided to break up with Tom and move back to her parents' house. She told him that she was finished with him this time for good. And for the first seven days that Candy was gone, Tom brought home a different woman to have sex with each night. But then for some reason, Tom's mom decided to meddle in their relationship and somehow decided that she was going to try and broker a reconciliation between Tom and Candy. She convinced Tom to ask Candy to come home and to make things even easier His mom offered to take Candy's oldest child, Bobby, back with her to Mississippi so they could have a little bit less to worry about while they worked through their problems. But none of Susan's efforts helped. Tom and Candy continued to not get along. The marriage had gone all wrong. And really, to me, it was doomed from the start. All the two of them needed to do was to officially accept that they were through. But then, one day, all of a sudden, in a last-minute change of plans, Tom decided to leave the job that he had found working construction. He packed up the car with Candy and Tiffany and drove them all the way down to Mississippi to pick Bobby back up. And Tom technically wasn't supposed to leave the state of Nebraska, but at that point, Tom no longer cared whether or not he went to jail. Things had gotten so bad between him and Candy that he knew that there was no going back. They were never going to be able to fix things, so going to jail, if that's the way things had to be, then that's the way things had to be. He just didn't care. Come late November of 1993, we're getting into the holiday season, all Candy and Tom ever did anymore was argue and threaten each other with divorce. But as far as staying faithful to one another, not that it was ever a thing in their relationship, but even any pretending that they were being monogamous was out the window. They still slept together, but they also slept with whomever else they wanted to. And that was the state of the relationship back in the first part of this series, part one, when I first mentioned Tom and Candy. They were living together at the time, towards the very end of 1993, but they were clearly disinterested in whatever the other was up to. Remember, thinking back to the first part of the series... On the night of December 31st, 1993, Candy was very pregnant and very asleep when Tom came home banging on the back door to be let in really early in the morning. And he asked Candy to help him bleach his hands and she didn't ask any questions. Yeah, so now we know why she didn't care. These two people had quit caring about one another long before this. And by the end of November, Tom was spending more time with other women than he was at home with candy. Along with all of the canoodling with other women, Tom had met a few new friends, including Lana Tisdale, John Lauder, Missy Wisdom, and Brandon Tina. And remember, Missy was Lana's aunt, her mom Linda's sister, and Missy was having a sexual relationship with Tom. Lana and John were described as close friends, kind of like family, but it was strongly suspected that there had been a sexual relationship between the two of them as well, but Lana would vehemently deny that. And we will learn more about Lana and John's history. It is important to the story and just exactly how all of these people managed to come together. And also, if you remember from part one, John Lauder had a girlfriend at the time. Her name was Rhonda McKenzie. She was also at the house that night that Tom came knocking on the door to be let in and to bleach his hands and whatnot. And as for Brandon, he had shown up at a party that Lana was hosting. And after that, he just kind of became a regular at their house. He was there all the time. So following that, just in short order, Tom, John and Brandon, they were boys. They hung out all the time, they drank together, they messed around, they pranked, they roughed house, and they always liked to talk about the ladies. Like I said, Tom was having a sexual relationship with Missy, but he did have a huge crush on her niece, Lana. While Candy was sure that Tom was sleeping with Lana, he denied it, insisting that they were only friends. Despite the fact that Candy had caught them one time, both of them were in their underwear, getting kinda hot and heavy, but they insisted that they didn't have sex. Candy it seemed was sort of at her wits end with life in general, and she just didn't seem to have the energy or the desire to do anything about it. She knew Tom was very, very into Lana. She could tell by the way he acted around her, but Candy also knew that Lana was dating both Brandon and John, so her calendar was already pretty full. So for Candy, the threat to her when it came to Tom and Lana was minimal. It turned out that John Lauder was the first guy that Lana Tisdell had really fallen for pretty hard. But John didn't want to open himself up to becoming too involved or too vulnerable. However, the truth was, he was quite enamored with Lana. In fact, he carried a torch for her for quite a long time. He was very deeply in love with her. He felt like they were meant to be together, but he just wasn't able or willing to close the deal. Men tended to find Lana very alluring, and she had all three of them, Tom, John, and Brandon, wrapped around her little finger. Candy and Tom fought so much about Lana that he finally just put an end to it all by telling Candy that he could have whoever he wanted over his house as a guest. It was his place. But deep down, the truth was he actually never thought he would ever have a chance with a woman as beautiful as Lana. So when she did start coming around, he would never ever turn her away or ask her to leave. In fact, there wasn't anything Tom wasn't willing to do for Lana. As the end of 1993 grew near, everything became stressful including the cold weather. Winters in Nebraska are pretty brutal. One of the most brutal was recently in 2019, just to give you an example of just how cold it can get in these areas of the country. So in 2019, a pretty good reference event would have to be Mr. Hoaxy Hoax himself, Jussie Smollett, who faked his hate crime on one of the nights of the polar vortex that struck the Midwest that January of that year. I love that Jesse chose a record-breaking freezing night to do that. I just find that to be ridiculously funny. But anyway, while the area of eastern Nebraska that the story is taking place in isn't all that close to Chicago, it's about an eight-hour drive, but it's only a state over, but you have to go all the way through Iowa and nearly all of Illinois, because Chicago is on the eastern edge of Illinois, which is very close to the Indiana border. The polar vortex pretty much froze the upper half of the entire continent of North America. Most of the territories and provinces in Canada and much of the northern parts of the United States were affected. There were 22 deaths in 2019 attributed to hypothermia. Amtrak halted some train travel. 2,700 flights were canceled. And one hate crime hoax was carried out despite the rapidly tumbling temperatures at the end of that January of 2019. So 1993 was a particularly harsh winter as well. Aphrodite Jones described it as violent weather. Brandon was basically living in the Tisdale home by then, but Lana's mother had become quite leery and suspicious of Brandon, even though she and Lana's sister liked him in the beginning. They were starting to see some of the cracks in Brandon's facade, and they were getting pretty close to tossing him out on his ass. Lana did not want that for him. She was afraid that Brandon would end up with no place to stay and stuck out in the freezing cold. Tom told Lana that the both of them could stay with him at his house until things blew over with her mom. Lana figured that her mom would let Brandon come back. Eventually, at least that's what she had hoped. So while all of this was going on, Lana was beginning to put the puzzle pieces together when it came to Brandon and it became apparent that most everything Brandon had told everybody about himself was a lie. And even though it had only been a couple of weeks, if that, since Lana and Brandon had first met, when he approached her car at that quick shop, you know, that hippest hangout in town, she had already fallen for him and she really wanted to be there for him, especially with this freezing cold weather, doubly especially during the holidays. She was willing to look past everything. She was willing to. Look past the fact that he was driving around in a Mercury Cougar that he said was his. But she later found out it actually belonged to Lisa Lambert. She was willing to look past the fact that he had stolen money from his friends and family. Of course, those things were issues, but it wasn't anything that would cause Lana to turn her back on Brandon. She did wonder how it was that Brandon always seemed to have money when he had not been working, but she didn't ask. She just assumed that Brandon was getting money from his mom. Aside from those lies, there were the lingering questions about Brandon's sexual identity. The whole thing was very confusing for Lana because deep down, she wanted him to be a man. They were intimate and she had stated that they had gone all the way. So she never really questioned it because she was convinced that they had had sex, but When she put more thought into it, when they were being intimate and the clothing started coming off, Brandon insisted that all the lights be kept off. And the time that she says that they did have sex, and I believe it was only once, she said it was only one time, when they were finished, Brandon darted into the bathroom, which Lana thought was kind of odd. And then she couldn't exactly recall whether or not Brandon had ejaculated. The whole thing really started to get to her the more she thought about it. Brandon had told her some really odd story about his anatomy when she had picked him up from jail. Because remember, he had been kept on the women's side of the county jail. I think he gave her some version of the hermaphrodite story, explaining that he had a penis, but he had gone through some sort of surgery and at first his penis was small early on, but it became larger over time. The whole explanation didn't really make much sense to Lana. In fact, it kind of weirded her out. As I said, when Brandon was in the county jail, Lana did go and visit him, and that's when she found him in the women's jail. And it was the time when she also noticed for the very first time that Brandon had breasts. Normally, Brandon binded his chest, But he couldn't do that in jail and the orange jumpsuit had kind of a v-neck so she could see when Brandon had leaned over momentarily that he did indeed have breasts. And she was pretty shocked that Brandon had been able to hide everything from her. I'm personally not surprised because Brandon had been doing it for so long and for so many years and had been practicing and looking at himself in the mirror and he got pretty good at it. When Lana picked Brandon up from jail when he was bailed out, he explained the whole hermaphrodite thing and that his intentions were to have gender-affirming surgery sometime in the near future. Later on, that same evening that Lana bailed Brandon out of jail, which was December 22nd, 1993, her mom, Linda, who played in a dart league, you know, in case... Hanging out at the gas station gets kind of old and boring. You can go over to the one bar in town and join a team of dart experts. Well, she was over at the sports bar that night competing when Tom Nissen arrived to see her. Lana asked him to go there and give her mom a handwritten note that she had penned for her. Lana's note said, Mom, i love you very much and don't forget that either you of all people should understand how i feel and what i'm going through but you don't if i can't talk to you about this then i can't talk to nobody if you don't understand then nobody will i just wish you were in my shoes and maybe you would be able to see things how i see them i'm very upset and hurt that you don't you should accept my feelings about brandon I'm alright and being taken care of so please stop Leslie and that's her sister from calling the cops on me I'm a big girl not a baby I love you love always Lana Linda was really worried about Lana there was something going on with her and it was changing everything about her daughter and it was bothering her a lot with all of the things that she was hearing around town about Brandon the stealing, his sexual identity. Those are the two main things. She felt like Lana was pulling more and more away from her. She was becoming reclusive and withdrawn, and that just wasn't like Lana. She spent most of her time at home hiding out in the basement, and she pretty much quit seeing or talking to any of her family and friends. And her mom just didn't get it. Aside from all the things that were suspicious about Brandon, she didn't see why her daughter was so into someone Who had told her so many lies? She told Lana that Brandon lying all the time and her just accepting it is letting him get away with making her out to look like a fool. But Lana held tight to whatever it was she had going on with Brandon. Lana made one thing abundantly clear even if it turned out that Brandon was transgender, it didn't matter. She still cared for him deeply, she loved him, and they would always. Be friends. So the note that Lana wrote to her mom pretty much backfired instead of working towards winning her mom over it only infuriated Linda even more. She felt like Lana had no respect for herself. The way she allowed Brandon to lie to her the way that he did. She also felt like Lana had become so wrapped up in her relationship with Brandon that she had all but stopped taking care of herself. She hardly ate. She wasn't socializing. She stopped fixing herself up. She wasn't doing her hair, her makeup. She even stopped taking regular showers. The note that Lana wrote to Linda was the last straw. Linda stormed out of the sports bar where she had been playing darts and followed Tom out to the parking lot all the way to his place where Brandon and Lana were staying. She barged into the house and this woman was at least double Brandon's size she barged in and placed one hand around his neck and ordered him into the bedroom as she physically walked him in there. And she demanded, show me now if you are male or female and the situation doesn't have to get any worse. We can do this the easy way or we can do this the hard way. But one of those ways, I'm going to find out what you are, is what she told him. Brandon, as he was being marched into the bedroom, He was like, okay, okay, I'll show you. But when they got in there and closed the door, it had pretty much reached a breaking point for Linda because she would later say she didn't give a rat's ass if Brandon was a man or a woman. She said she didn't care about anybody's sexual orientation or anybody's sexual identity. All she wanted was her daughter to go back to the way that she was before Brandon came into her life. And if she had to force Brandon to prove what the truth was to make that happen, then so be it. Linda's logic was this. If she could get the truth out of Brandon, then she wouldn't have any more problems with Lana. Once they were in the room alone, though, Brandon hesitated, which is completely understandable and completely his right. This woman had no right to be demanding that Brandon tell her or prove to her anything so when he began to roll back on his promise to prove his gender linda just lost it she shoved brandon he stumbled back into a mirrored dresser causing that mirror to shatter when lana heard this she forced her way into the bedroom and she told her mom that she needed to get out of the bedroom go out into the front room and wait she would find out the truth for herself after Less than a minute in the bedroom, Lana came out and told her mom that she has confirmed that Brandon is male, so now it was time to just drop it. Linda didn't know what to say or think or do, so she ended up leaving, but she wasn't going to drop the matter, not just yet. Instead, she drove over to the closest payphone, probably at the quick shop where everybody gets their phone calls while they're hanging out at the gas station, and she called up Lana's dad. It was her ex-husband, and she told him everything that was going on with Brandon. Now, don't forget, dreamers, it has only been a month since Brandon fled Fall City for Humboldt. It has only been about two weeks since Lana met Brandon, and it's only been 10 days since he turned 21. This is a very, very short window of time for all of these things to have escalated so quickly. Now, dreamers, don't hate me. But we've got another L name for you, and this is Leland Tisdell. He is Leslie and Lana's father, Linda's ex-husband. Yeah, Linda, Leland, Lana, and Leslie. Lana was the one who was the closest with her dad. And when he heard the things that Linda had to say about her relationship with Brandon, including that she was 99.99% certain that Brandon was female, Leland just about shit himself, and he said he was headed over to Tom Nissen's place immediately. Linda told him where Tom lived. He told her he was going there right away, and he hung up the phone. But before he left, he picked the phone back up and called the police and requested their presence at Tom's house, which is probably a good idea. Officers John Cavarzaghi and Greg Cohen got to Tom's house about the same time that Lana's dad got there. But before any of them were able to make their way into Tom's home, Brandon had slipped out the back and vanished. Lana was left to deal with her father, but once again, things quickly escalated into a shouting match while Leland tried to knock some sense into Lana's head. They finally took the argument out to his vehicle where he tried to calm down so he could try and find out a few things and ask a couple of questions, but Lana wasn't having it. And it was one of the first times, if not the first time, that Lana was ever this defiant towards her own father. She sat there, silent, refusing to provide him with any answers to his questions. At some point, Linda had shown back up at the scene, and she was the loudest and most belligerent one there, to a point that when she tried getting back into her car, the two officers there told her if she started to drive away that they would have her arrested for driving under the influence remember she had been playing darts at the bar probably drinking and that doesn't sound like that great of a combination at least not for me anyway i'm not great at drinking and i'm not great at darts and i would hate to be doing both of those activities at the same time with other people innocent people standing around lana intervened between her parents and she said that she would take her mom home just to get away from having to discuss these matters any further with her father. However, during the argument out in front of Tom's house, along with the police, Linda tattled on Lana about the check that she had written for $250 to bail Brandon out of jail. If you recall, when Brandon was arrested, he was begging both Lana and Lisa, whoever was willing, to help bail him out. It turned out that Lana's dad had given her a signed blank check for her to get her hair done at the salon but she ended up writing it out to pay for brandon's bail instead and her dad didn't know about it or he hadn't gotten the cash check sent back to him yet because remember those days when we would write checks and each month the bank would mail back the cash checks along with your bank statement yeah that was a long time ago right so at first leland was mad about the check when linda told him about it but then, Lana had never done such a thing before in the past, and he still had a very soft spot for his youngest daughter, so he wasn't really worried about it in the moment. The two officers there said that if he wanted, he could file charges for the check, but he said that he didn't want to do that. The police told him that, you know, we don't need your cooperation to pursue charges against your daughter, but it didn't really concern Lana's dad too much because the fact was he did give his daughter a blank check and he was the one who had signed it. So he was like, do whatever you want to do. That was my signature on the check and I gave it to her willingly. He was more worried about Lana's well-being than this $250 check. He wanted to help Lana. He didn't want to make things worse. He had even floated the idea with Linda about sending Lana to the mental health facility for a month-long treatment plan, but they knew that Lana would strongly resist it and they couldn't force her. Things quickly quieted back down and Lana's dad, he backed off. But to Linda, Lana seemed to continue to get worse. She appeared to be so distraught and upset all the time, to a point where it had become exceedingly self-destructive so Linda's solution was to try and get two of Lana's closest friends to somehow help Linda felt like she had no other option so I already went over Tom Nissen and his background and we know that he is a very volatile and unstable young man and we're going to learn more about John Lotter and the things in his background in a few minutes just know that it was Lana's mother, Linda, who set this December 31st, 1993 collision course in motion. I mean, ultimately, what would end up happening isn't her fault, but she certainly helped to point these two young men in the right direction. This story is just this whole amalgamation of people needing to just mind their own business and worry about themselves. No, Linda just couldn't let her daughter work through her own things. But more than that, she was just so bothered by Brandon's gender identity. And I'm trying to understand that mindset. This was almost 29 years ago. But I have a daughter that is the same age as these people. And I just don't get in her face about things. And I don't make the things that my daughter does all about me. That's something that my own mother did for my entire life. She somehow made everything that I did all about her, and if nothing else, I was taught exactly how not to be with my own daughter. I absolutely wouldn't turn to my daughter's friends to try and have them interfere and intervene either, and that sounds like a surefire way of getting my daughter to hate my guts. Maybe this is just like small-town drama, everybody's up in everybody else's business, hanging out at gas stations, sniffing too much fumes. I don't know. We have twenty twenty hindsight. We know how the story is going to end. So knowing that Linda meddled like this just really has me wishing that she had just kept her big mouth shut and just let her daughter deal with the things that she wanted to deal with them the way that she wanted to and just offer to be there for your daughter when she's ready or when she really needs her mom. Just, Just let her let her be it's so frustrating how this story unfolds and i just wish that this book this case the story this podcast was like a choose your own adventure book where there was somewhere a happily ever after that we could end up at but there's just not john lauder when he was told about all this drama with brandon and lana when Linda reached out to him and Tom for help. John seemed pretty level headed about everything, and he assured Linda that he would be more than happy to try and help sort through things with Lana, though he did say that it was upsetting to him that Brandon was making Lana look foolish with all of the lies that he was telling. But what John didn't like even more so was the fact that Brandon had been lying to him, too. Remember, John, Tom, and Brandon had become fast friends, drinking partners, gas station, hangout buddies. Brandon had become like one of the guys. So, he had his own reasons. John had his own reasons for wanting to know the truth as well. As if everybody in the story is somehow entitled to know Brandon's business, but whatever. I just don't get this mindset that everybody is in about needing to know or forcing somebody to divulge They're deeply personal business. Why not just leave it alone or walk away or don't be friends with Brandon if they're that small minded and petty? I just don't get it. So in the couple of days between Christmas Day and the days leading up to that, when there was the confrontations between Linda and Brandon, then Lana and Linda, then the follow up confrontation between Leland, Lana and the police, John had a chance to talk to Lana privately. Remember, that whole confrontation happened on December 22nd. So, in the three days in between, that's when John had a chance to talk to Lana about everything. He wanted to discuss Brandon's gender identity, of course, because it's everybody's business, right? He wanted to talk about the rumors going around town about him, about how... Brandon was making her look and how people were gossiping about her. But Lana continued to stand by Brandon. John was talking about things that he didn't know anything about. She told him that she loved Brandon very much and he was the best thing in her life ever. And Lana told John what I was just saying that everybody in this little town needed to do. Sit down and mind your own business. John finally threw his hands up and told her, If you want to be in a lesbian relationship, so be it. But he warned her that everybody knew about Brandon and everybody knew about them and what they were. And Lana just listened and shrugged. It was the first time that it occurred to John that Lana, his longtime friend and somebody that he really wanted to be with will come to find out that she might be gay. Now she was insisting that she was in love with a female. Or she thought she was in love with the female. He just wasn't sure about anything anymore. I still say it's none of his damn business. If everybody just worried about themselves. We wouldn't even know this case. We would never know who Brandon Tina was. John Lauder had been crushing on Lana since around the time that they were in middle school. While her mom Linda would say that they were kind of boyfriend and girlfriend back in the day. She wasn't really supportive of the relationship because, you know, she likes to meddle in her daughter's business. I'm kidding, but they were in middle school, so I'd give her a pass on that one. She can meddle. But she knew John Lauder was nothing but bad news, and she wasn't wrong. He was always in trouble. He was always doing things like stealing cars, forging checks, shoplifting, and Linda just didn't want her daughter getting caught up with a guy like that. Lana was about the same age as John's younger sister and her name well one of his sisters' name is Michelle and the girls were best friends and Lana was over at the Lauder House so much that she basically lived there. When Lana was about eight years old, her parents, Linda and Leland, they split up. And it was really hard on her and she spent a lot of time confiding in her friend Michelle. And that's how she got to know John really well and eventually John and Lana grew pretty close and he was pretty much Lana's first love. At that age, even when you're just a couple of years older, it seems like such a wide gap between them because she thought that he was just so smart and he knew so much about everything and she says that she learned a lot from him. To me, and all that I've read and seen, he seems kind of like a dumbass, but that's what she said. She learned a lot from him. As Lana started going to high school, she was still hung up on John, and Linda tried to prevent her daughter from seeing him because she was worried that he was going to bring trouble into Lana's life. But Lana defended her relationship with John, just like she defended her relationship with Brandon, and she told her mom that John was very nice to her, that he was kind and sweet and caring, and she told her mom that parents just don't understand. Linda felt like Lana jumped into the relationship too quickly, that she had just went for the first boy to show her any attention at all. She knew that Lana didn't quite understand that there was going to come a time when she would have her pick of which boys that she would want to date. And she tried to get it through Lana's head that John was a bad choice, Trouble followed him everywhere that he went and she warned her daughter she's going to end up either in trouble or heartbroken. Of course, Lana refused to listen to her mother. Things weren't all that great between Linda and Lana during this time when Lana and John's relationship was getting started. When Lana's parents divorced her father, he managed to walk away with nearly everything. He got most of the marital assets, which included three pieces of land that they owned, and he got full custody of Lana and Leslie. Linda had visitation, but she was left struggling. She had no money. She wasn't getting any alimony, and she barely saw her daughters. But to her, it was worth getting away from Leland. He was more than a dozen years older than her. According to Linda, he was also controlling and abusive. He drank and gambled to a point that it was destroying their family, their home and their finances. So when the divorce was finalized and Leland got everything, including the family home and the kids and all the land, she just didn't care. She was just happy to be free of him, though it was hard to not be able to see her girls as much as she would have liked. While Leland had slapped Linda around, even dragging her out of the house into the street by her hair one time, And he had his addictions and vices. Linda's primary role as she was the stay at home parent. She apparently wasn't that great at it. In Aphrodite Jones's book, she described Linda as the housewife from hell writing. She was expected to handle all the domestic business, but she wasn't any good at it. She never cleaned the house enough. She was new at cooking and she was gone a lot partying with her friends. And Leslie was just about a year and a half old and when Linda wasn't paying attention one time and the baby immersed herself in a tub of boiling water, Leslie had second-degree burns from the waist down. The trauma was so severe that the child's toenails fell off. Now, dreamers, there's no excuse for the injuries caused by Linda's failure to supervise her children properly or for partying way too much when you have two young children That should be her priority. But when you have a husband that's an abusive drinker with a gambling problem, you're probably not going to be having a happy wife at home cooking and cleaning and raising your kids. Sometimes you get as good as you give. Neither one of them is blameless. But what marked the beginning of the end for Linda was when she was pregnant in 1977 with a boy, finally, And at about three and a half months along, she suffered a miscarriage. When Leland showed up at the emergency room, he angrily told her that she wasn't woman enough to carry and birth a boy. He had already had her feeling as though she was inadequate in every other way. That, however, cut deep. A year after Lana's parents divorced, her mom moved in with her brother who lived in Great Bend, Kansas. I looked it up on maps because it said Great Bend is where the Arkansas River's largest arc is near central Kansas. And then I managed to find myself in this rabbit hole about how the Arkansas in Arkansas River is pronounced. I think I heard or was told a long time ago that it's pronounced Arkansas River. It depends on what region you are from. The river itself generally flows east uh, and southeast across Colorado, Kansas, Oklahoma, and Arkansas. People in the eastern parts of Colorado and Kansas call it Arkansas. People in central Colorado and Oklahoma and Arkansas pronounce it the way we pronounce the state of Arkansas. So I guess if you're in any of the other 46 states, nobody gives a shit how everybody else pronounces it so don't come at me i said both of them california nevada there's no rules on how to pronounce the arkansas river oh and also another fun fact that i found out about arkansas is that the state does have a law on the books that was passed in 1881 that makes it illegal to mispronounce arkansas All you pronunciation freaks out there, they made a law about it. According to an article written by Andrea Coleman on TheMedium.com, it's entitled The Wokest Law in America. Don't pronounce Arkansas wrong or else. It's Title I, Chapter 4, Section 104 of the Arkansas Code. It regulates how people pronounce Arkansas. People must say the name of the state in a specific way. It's not Arkansas. It's not Arkansas's. It must be pronounced Arkansas. So it is not up for debate. Or it's not depending on what part of the United States or what part of the world that you're from. We've sat here and debated how things are supposed to be pronounced. And there's just this certain kind of appreciation about somebody stepping in and regulating it. So there's no other which way about it. You're not going to get chased down by police and wrestled to the ground or placed in a chokehold, tased or shot and you probably won't even get a ticket or a fine but you might the author of the article that i read andrea i don't even know how to say her name the right way because it's just in print this andrea has a pet peeve about her name being mispronounced i don't know how it's officially pronounced but you know it's one of those ways it could go andrea andrea and if she had it her way there would be a law on how to pronounce her name and she would be giving out tickets for any infractions. So anyway, that's enough side tracking, especially if we want to get through this case. Okay, so Linda went to go live in Great Bend, Kansas. And her visits to her girls in Fall City were infrequent to a point that they didn't even really view her as their mother anymore. But they were also told that Linda had abandoned them and was a terrible mother anyway. So even if she was around, Leslie, at least, since she was the oldest, didn't want a mom like that to begin with, and that resentment towards her mother would carry over into adulthood. But Leland, he ended up getting remarried and having more kids, and this eventually led Leslie to leave her father's home. She ran away. Lana followed suit and left to go live with Linda in Kansas. Leslie and Lana weren't getting along so well when they both decided to leave their father's house, so they left separately and lived apart from each other. Linda eventually moved back to Fall City with Lana, and Lana began attending the same schools that she had once gone to. Linda was born and raised in Fall City, so that's where she felt the most comfortable and the most at home. While all of this was going on with Lana, John Lauder had found himself serving time in prison, but he kept in touch with Lana by writing letters at least once or twice a week and no matter where she moved to john did his best to keep track of where she was so he wouldn't lose touch lana liked getting letters from john he was very sweet and loving in them but she was also kind of picking up on some hints that he was attempting to be controlling over her from prison he would repeatedly tell her to wait for him to get out don't be with anybody else But every time he got out of prison, he would wind up going right back in. The guy just couldn't stay out of trouble. But Lana had so many feelings for him. She was very attached to John and cared for him a lot. But because he spent so much of his time locked up in prison, she simply didn't think that there was ever a chance for much of a future with him. They never really had enough time together to really begin talking about their plans before he would get picked up for doing something stupid all over again. She tried to be as reassuring and encouraging as possible when she would write to him, but she wasn't really believing the things that she was telling him, even for herself. She would say things in her letters like she would wait for him, but deep down she knew that she didn't really want to. And this would continue through John's seemingly endless cycle of going in and out of jail, in and out of prison. When it came to Lana's older sister, Leslie, she never returned to Fall City. She kind of drifted around, really not having any place that she felt like was a real home for her, where there was a support system or family structure. She found herself in a series of dysfunctional and abusive relationships. She was with one man and his name was Dwayne and Leslie had fallen for him and they had even had a baby together. At the time, however, Linda was in no position to be taking care of a baby. She was only 17 years old when she had her. And like John Lauder and Tom Nisett, as it were, she was also in the county jail pretty frequently for various petty stuff. And Linda barely wanted to have anything to do with her daughter, much less her daughter's daughter, who she named Jasmine. Thank goodness it's not an L name, right? So Linda made arrangements for a family member of hers to take custody of the baby. Leslie did it. She went through with it and gave up her kid, but she regretted it and resented her mother for making her do it. With all the turmoil and dysfunction, the only person Leslie really felt was trustworthy and loyal, was her baby sister, Lana. Even though they hadn't got along and went their separate ways, they still had a very strong connection that they would describe as being similar to the connections that twins have with one another. At the same time, Lana and Linda were as different as night and day. Linda was a little bit heavyset. She was bossy and demanding. While Lana was thin and wispy and quiet, Aphrodite Jones described her as a perpetually wilting flower, but despite their different personalities, when they got older, they got along better. Leslie was very protective of Lana because she felt as though she was the only family that she had left. She moved out of her dad's house. Her mom left her. Then her mom forced her to give up her baby. Lana was it. Lana was her baby sister and she was everything to Leslie. Leslie. I stated earlier that it didn't seem like John Lauder and Lana Tisdell had a sexual relationship. I wasn't sure if I believed that or not, but she would swear on a stack of Bibles that they never had sex. They had a dating relationship that was on again, off again across several years, but she insisted that they never went all the way, that they were really young when they met. They were children and they did things that friends that age did together. They would go to the park. They would ride their bikes together. They would watch their favorite TV shows together. She did admit that it felt like he was more in love with her than she was with him. After John turned 18, he had really come into his own and was not having any problem at all attracting women. And he was quite popular, but he was so into Lana that he didn't pay much attention to other people. In fact, he wanted to marry Lana, but it just wasn't meant to be. It was sometime in 1990 when John was in prison and he sent Lana a letter and he was sounding like a broken record, apologizing for messing up, but also to tell her that he was more convinced than ever that they were meant to be together, that he wanted her to forgive him for all the things that he had done wrong, to try and let go of all of the mistakes that he had made. But Lana had already moved on. She had a new boyfriend and his name was Roy. He was a little bit older and she was in love with him and there was nothing that John could do about it. He'd blown his chance. So he wrote back and told her that he wished her all the happiness in the world, but it wasn't too long afterwards that Lana sent John a follow-up letter telling him that her relationship with Roy had been rocky, they hit a rough patch, and this was very welcome news for John. So his response was to dial up the charm, turn up the romance, the loving, caring letters, and the greeting cards flooded in to Lana's mailbox, assuring her, as always, that he would be there for her no matter what. John got out of prison in 1991, and he managed to woo Lana back, but then he went right back into prison, and they went back to being pen pals once again. He started spinning his broken record once again, all the promises, I'll change, I'll be better, I'm going to make you the priority, blah, blah, blah. Even though he was barely into his 20s, John acted like or thought that he knew what he wanted out of life. And a big part of that involved being with Lana. He was certain that she was the one for him. He insisted that he wanted to marry her. He wanted to have children with her. And his letters were nauseatingly lovey dovey, mushy, gushy, icky, gross, yuck. Unfortunately for John, Lana wasn't anywhere close to wanting to settle down and to start a family for her. All that meant was growing old, gaining weight, and being trapped at home, cooking and cleaning all day. Lana was one who wanted to finish up high school, which she was behind on. She wanted to catch up. She wanted to continue her education. At the time, computers were becoming a more integral part of the classroom, and she wanted to learn more about the budding technology. She wanted to be a part of the workforce with a secure career. In fact, She wanted nothing to do with having kids, at least not at that point in her life. John Lauder was barking up the wrong tree. But he did what he could to hang on to what little he had left of his on-again, off-again relationship with Lana. But the more time he spent in jail, as opposed to out of jail, caused Lana to drift further and further away from him. He tried keeping her abreast of his court dates, when he was going to be paroled, when he was planning on being able to be with her again. But John's friends on the outside, his gossipy friends like everybody else all up in everybody else's business, they told John all the rumors that they had been hearing about Lana dating other men. And they were laying it on thick, telling John that she was seeing an assortment of people. And I don't know if it's true or just gas station gossip, but all that did was cause John to grow more and more angry as he sat behind bars, unable to do anything about it. Well, John managed to get out on parole again during the summer of 1992. He was back home in fall city and he did indeed start seeing Lana again, but it probably doesn't surprise any of you listening that things didn't go well. Like several of the men that we've discussed thus far in the story, John had a very jealous and controlling side to him. So, you know, he spent many months stewing in jail over the rumors that he had been told about Lana's dating life outside of him. So when he got out and got back together with her, he couldn't help but be suspicious all the time. Anytime John noticed Lana having just even a friendly conversation with another guy, he would cause a huge scene with yelling and name calling. And of course, It was all a big, huge double standard because John made no secret about his own fooling around with other women and constantly trying to lie to Lana about it. And not only had she caught him one time making out with another girl, there was an occasion when she caught him making out with her own sister, Leslie. She did end up blaming John for that incident, mostly because her sister was pretty drunk at the time, but John had no excuses lana barely trusted him to begin with so after the whole thing with her sister what little trust she did have left was completely gone but lana just had a really hard time letting john go completely she did have a lot of love for him she cared about him and for the most part she enjoyed hanging out with him he had a great sense of humor she always laughed and had a good time goofing off with him And she did love all of the attention that he showered on her. John definitely knew how to charm Lana. And she knew it was something that she never wanted to lose. Even if she was dating other guys, she always had John hanging around and he always made her feel good. And while she wasn't interested in seeing him out of her life completely, She probably wouldn't have been able to get rid of him, even if she tried, because he was constantly after her, no matter who she was with or whoever he was with, he always managed to circle himself back to Lana. The house that John Lauder grew up in with parents, Terry and Donna was very odd looking, especially from the outside. But everybody knew the Lauders, and they knew what their situation was. And it was something that most people were just kind of used to, including Lana. From what I read about the house, it kind of sounded like it was sort of put together in an amateurish kind of way. Like they had some drywall and paneling up throughout the inside. So I don't think it was done with a tremendous amount of workmanship or money. But then the outside of the house was really run down. The place actually looked like it was condemned from the outside. Some of the windows were boarded up and somehow the exterior walls of the house were covered in mold. John's dad, Terry, wasn't much of a father or a husband while John was growing up. He didn't take care of the family and it was clear he wasn't helping to take care of the house considering the condition it was in. John's mom, Donna, not only took care of the family and the house, she worked three jobs in addition to all that. So, their neighbors and friends really felt more sorry for her and the terrible shape that the house was in and didn't really hold it against her that the place was kind of the neighborhood eyesore. Since Donna was gone most of the time working, she would often come home and take power naps in the living room while her husband Terry had the bedroom to himself most of the time. And like the apple that didn't fall far from the tree, Just like his son John, Terry didn't hide the fact that he was seeing women on the side too, though it's been speculated that this was sort of an arrangement that John's parents had agreed on apparently. Even though John was one of five children that his parents had together, it was kind of hard to believe that the two of them had procreated that many times considering they barely saw each other or spoke to one another. While John's dad left most of the responsibilities of working, earning money, and taking care of the house and the kids on the shoulders of John's mother, they did have a neighbor named Anita Lundy who took pity on Donna and all the work that she was saddled with. Anita was a widow raising two young boys on her own, and oftentimes John's sisters would help out and babysit her kids. But John was always a handful whenever he came over to Anita's house. He was always able to be super sneaky about it. So Anita had a hard time catching him red handed whenever he caused trouble. She just noticed from the time that she first moved in next door to the Lauder home that John, even at the age of five, he was trouble. Everywhere he went, trouble ensued, including an incident when John had struck one of Anita's boys at a time when he was only about a year and a half old, cutting his eye open. He struck him with a hammer. And I don't exactly know what that injury was like, but she did say it caused her son's eye to be permanently droopy. After that, she never trusted John around her children. She just didn't trust him, period. While Anita suspected that John was responsible for numerous acts of vandalism on her property, she was never actually able to catch him doing it red-handed. She never saw him do it. But she just had this very strong feeling that it was him. Someone had thrown paint all over her deck in the backyard. Her truck had been sprayed with a can of spray paint. Someone wrote the F word all over her vehicle using a Sharpie. There was a time when the laundry was hung outside to dry and someone threw dirt and mud all over the clothing. Anita tried complaining to John's mom about these incidents, but she never really had much to say or much reaction to any of it. It finally got to a point where Anita couldn't even let her boys go outside to play because John was always sitting out there cursing at other kids, just looking to start trouble, looking for someone to pick on or something to vandalize. There was another time when John's sister was babysitting for Anita, and for whatever reason, John wanted to go inside her house, but his sister had strict instructions to not let him in, so he tried breaking a window to get in, and he ended up in the emergency room needing stitches. The whole thing seemed to be kind of fun and exciting for John, which Anita found to be quite disturbing. At some point, Anita knew John had been sent to live in a group home and then into a foster home, but that didn't work out very well either when John ended up stabbing one of the kids of the family that he was living with through the arm with a pencil. John Lauder was the baby of the family, so by the time he was born, His dad was around less and less with the birth of each one of them, him being the fifth and last. And with dad living the bachelor life and mom working nearly around the clock to support the family, John would end up being the one who longed for attention the most, and he wasn't getting any. That coupled with the fact that he was the baby, but he wasn't babied by his older brothers and sisters. In fact, they bullied and picked on him relentlessly. However, as he got older, around the age of 12 or so, getting into the pre-teen years, John started to fight back. There was one time when Anita heard screaming coming from the Lauder home. She hurried outside and found John, having tackled one of his sisters to the ground, holding a chef's knife in his hand, threatening to kill her. So Anita hurried over to him and took the knife out of his hand and told his sister to call their mom. Mom ended up sending John off to the group home yet again. Anita asked Donna about John occasionally, but she really didn't have much to say other than he's crazy. Then Donna eventually admitted that she, along with her daughters, were very afraid of John. And I just can't help but think what a terrible place to be in. I always felt that way whenever I watched TV shows like Dr. Phil and I would see parents living in fear of their own teenage children. Just how awful to be afraid of your own kid. And because Donna was afraid of John, Anita started to be afraid of him too. So yeah, this kid, barely about to become a teenager, had his own family and his neighbor living under siege. As John Lauder got older, the fear his mom and his sisters had of him only intensified. And then he began his real criminal career. No more destructive pranks or beating up his sisters for fun. John began robbing the local gas station. Yeah, the sacred hangout of all places. He was also breaking into homes and burglarizing. He got into that same cycle that Tom Nissen had fallen into, committing petty crimes, going to juvenile hall, getting out and repeat. John was never in big trouble, nor were his stays in the juvenile detention center ever for very long either. By the time John was nine years old, He had become a ward of the state and spent the next half dozen years living with his foster parents sporadically. And their names were Clarence and Helen Robinson. They did the best that they could to work with John's troubled behavior. But no matter what they tried, they couldn't get through to him. So eventually they washed their hands of him as well. By the time John was getting to be about 14 or 15 years old, he had already had a pretty lengthy police record. He was known to all local law enforcement and was considered to be a habitual and repeat offender, with his first brushes with the law having dated back to the late 1970s, even before he turned 10. John was born in 1971, so by 79, he was stealing bikes, he was destroying property, eventually he graduated to stealing cars and burglarizing houses, he was committing assault, fleeing from police, and he had an attempt to take his own life by hanging himself while he was in one of his stints in the county jail. When John was 14, he underwent some psychological evaluations, and the doctor that examined him noted that John had a misshapen skull, misshapen ears, and his face was asymmetrical. But what all that specifically meant for John isn't clear. However, I did look up some skull and facial deformities and what that's an indicator of. And mostly it can be attributed to a premature fusion of the various sutures of the skull or abnormal growth of the skull or birth defects. I did look up a recent picture of John because the pictures of him around the time the story took place. John had kind of shaggy, shoulder-length hair, maybe sort of an unmaintained mullet. It's kind of hard to tell if his head is oddly shaped. But in a more recent picture of him, he's 51, going on 52 years old this October, and he's got sort of that receding hairline going on and his hair is cut pretty short. So you can see his head and his ears are kind of odd. And I'll post the picture of him when this episode goes live and when I remember. With options running out for John and where he could possibly live, his social worker tried getting him into a home for troubled boys called Father Flanagan's Boys Town. It's located in Boys Town, Nebraska, which is kind of in the central part of the state and the city is named after the boys' home that Father Flanagan had founded. And while it started off as an orphanage for boys only, they did start bringing girls into the program sometime in the 1970s. The girls lived separate from the boys and the girls being there did kind of improve the behavior of many of the boys and the home is still around today. It's been around for 104 years. So this would be just about John Lauder's last resort when it came to living situations. But his social workers application to get John into Boys Town was denied with a director of the place writing in the notes of John's paperwork, quote, John Lauder is a very angry, hostile, violent and uncontrollable youngster. And Boys Town is not the appropriate place for him. So, yeah. It's pretty bleak when the home for troubled boys is unwilling to provide this 14-year-old with a place to live because he's too violent and uncontrollable. When he was asked to write about himself on his application, it was clear that John was crippled by his own insecurities. He felt like nobody liked him, that boys refused to be friends with him and girls hated his guts. He was relentlessly teased about the shape of his head and his ears, which were also disproportionately large. He longed to feel as though he fit in, like he belonged somewhere. He wanted desperately for his peers to like him, but they never did. So all of that manifested into an overwhelming hatred for pretty much everything and everybody, and it showed. John Lauder had an icy cold glare, a look that really had people afraid for their safety whenever he was around. His old neighbor, Anita... She said that John Lauder had the same cold stare as Charles Manson. So we get the idea that John Lauder had always been this presence in Lana Tisdell's life. They both wanted each other in their lives, but at the same time, they didn't want each other. She was like that comfort friend, the one that would always be there for John when he was locked up or when he wasn't locked up. He could count on her for letters and reassuring words and to just, just be there. He was everything that she would have wanted to have had in a boyfriend when it came to giving her all sorts of undivided attention. And he tried his best to woo her over the years. And to an extent, she probably got some comfort from him being a part of her life too. But he certainly wasn't boyfriend material in terms of what she was looking for. And he really wasn't looking for a girlfriend. He was looking for a wife and someone to have kids with. And she knew that wasn't the path in life that she wanted to go down, at least not at that point. She wanted to finish up school and have a career. And Lana was smart enough to realize that being in a relationship with John would probably be just like raising a kid who was also stuck in the revolving door of the justice system. She had no interest in that. There were plenty of people out there who would have been, but she wasn't one of them. So John was relegated to the sidelines of Lana's love life. And whenever it so happened that she was dating somebody, John always seemed to be right there sticking his nose in her business, insisting on knowing all the details about whoever it was she was seeing. And he wanted to know everything that he possibly could find out about these guys. And this included Brandon, Tina. John and Lana eventually called it quits on trying to pursue a romantic relationship with one another and they would stay friends and move on to seeing other people. Although to me, it doesn't really sound like John and Lana were ever really totally exclusive. John started dating Rhonda McKenzie. I mentioned her back in part one. She was there staying at Tom and Candy Nissen's house on the night that John and Tom came home in the early morning hours of December 31st 1993 acting suspicious Rhonda, not really the brightest girl in town she was somewhat insecure and a little bit on the heavy side and maybe someone John Lauder settled on or was with until someone else came along I formed the opinion that Rhonda wasn't all that bright but it may very well have been that she was just really super naive or blind But John was still seeing other women all the time, all over the place, and she never seemed to catch on at all. She just believed whatever it was that John told her, or at the very least, Rhonda wanted to believe him. Rhonda's mom and her friends, they tried knocking some sense into her, but she wasn't having it. And they ended up getting pregnant, and Aphrodite Jones wrote in her book that it was a calculated move on Rhonda's part to try and get John to settle down with her so yeah if that's true not smart john and Rhonda they had a baby girl named rochelle even though john was involved with Rhonda, he still carried that torch for lana and to an extent she did as well for him they were affectionate and lana and her sister leslie were basically like extended family for john as well as his sister michelle the four of them together lana leslie michelle and john they constantly hung out partied gas stationed, pulled pranks, they were close. They had each other's back. And when I say pranks, I mean stupid stuff that young people might pull when they have nothing better to do. If perhaps the gas station got too boring, they would go and steal signs from local businesses, tip over shopping carts. I don't know, I told you it was stupid stuff. And it was that kind of pranking that brought Brandon in on their little group, turning their foursome into a fivesome. The pranks that he would pull were actually petty crimes. He stole a wall clock from a local hospital and some sort of lawn ornament from somebody's house. Brandon had always been a prankster, and he had long been a criminal, but these kinds of crimes, unlike his check-forging and identity theft, these were things that were easier to get away with, and he liked that a lot. And Leslie, Lana's sister, She plays somewhat of a small but pivotal role in the story, particularly when it comes to the three people who ended up in that farmhouse outside of Humboldt the night of December 30th going into the early morning hours of the 31st, 1993. Lisa Lambert, Brandon Tina, and Philip Devine. Leslie, for her entire life, was in her little sister Lana's shadow lana was the prettier one lana was the thinner one lana was the one who got all the attention the way that john fawned over lana was something that leslie had never experienced before in her life and as a result she not only harbored a bit of jealousy towards lana she found herself on this quest to find a man who loved and adored her the way john loved and adored her sister more often than not leslie would wound up getting hurt both emotionally and physically so finally in 1993 it was that fall getting towards the later part of the year leslie decided to try and pick up the pieces of her life and straighten it all out she had troubled relationships but she also had trouble with the law the only way she was ever going to get on the right track she figured is if she did something productive and meaningful with her life to get into some kind of schooling or training find a career And from there, if she was able to achieve that, everything else would fall into place, hopefully. If she felt better about herself and her life and her self-worth, then she would feel confident enough to raise her standards when it came to men and to stop settling for one abusive asshole after another. Leslie was getting to the age when she was seriously starting to think about settling down, getting married and having a family, but a good job needed to come first. So Leslie ended up signing up for the Job Corps in Denison, Iowa. And it's not exactly the biggest town in terms of population today. It sits at slightly more than 8,000 residents, but it's certainly one of the more populated cities that we've discussed thus far in the story, and just about the only one so far where the population of the city has slowly but steadily grown since it was incorporated nearly 150 years ago. Denison is described as an all-American town. I'm not particularly fond of that type of a description, all-American, when it comes to places and people because I think it's vague and one of those things that is used to fill space and make things out to be wholesome and perfect. If we're talking about apple pie, then I'll accept that as something all-American, but as far as people and places are concerned, No. But anyway, Leslie made her way to Denison, which is about a three-hour drive north from Fall City, Nebraska, and she was really hoping for a better, brighter future for herself. And she had the full support of her sister and her mom, which made the short-term move to Iowa that much easier, knowing that they were there for her. Of Denison, Aphrodite Jones wrote in her book, It's a lily-white town with incredible Victorian homes lining sleepy streets, a large agricultural workforce, and two packing plants where they slaughter cattle and hogs. On windy days, you can smell the odor of bacon permeating the air, but people from Denison are so used to it that they hardly seem to notice. On the cusp of middle class, the town is somewhat economically depressed, but it still had its fair share of bars and restaurants and a striptease club called Bookham Dano's, which does very good business. Of course, the kids from Job Corps don't go there. Most of them are under the drinking age. Besides, the locals don't mix well with outsiders. Job Corps kids basically keep to themselves. Job Corps helps get troubled kids from the region if they're living on the streets or run away from home. The Job Corps gives them a place to live for free and free education and free job training that will help get their foot the door at a place where they will earn a livable wage philip devine was also enrolled at the job corps and he was one of their standout students originally born in los angeles california philip's family eventually found their way to fairfield iowa and settled there that was about four hours southeast of denison in fact philip was chosen to represent the denison branch of the job corps when he traveled to Washington, D.C. to speak to a couple of United States Senators. He was certainly on his way to a bright future. And even though he was still young, only 22 at the time that this story took place, the people who knew him, his family and friends, they all knew that he was going places in life. Even the gentleman responsible for getting the job corps set up there in Iowa said that someday Philip could be the mayor of Denison. That's how much dedication and leadership people saw in this young man. On top of that, he was also quite handsome, very popular with the ladies. He had a good sense of fashion. He was confident, charming, smart, and really, he didn't have an enemy in the world. Everybody liked the guy. They genuinely liked him. While the Job Corps had pretty strict rules and regulations, leslie was already kind of used to that considering she had spent several stints in group homes while growing up and really she knew that she needed the structure if she was ever going to achieve those goals that she set up for herself the job corps was the first thing that had given her hope and then she met philip devine he caught her eye right away he was tall he was good looking and he was only about a year older than she was at the time she immediately felt like he was the type of guy that she could settle down with and see herself being with in the long term. He was outgoing and charismatic by nature, but when he got friendly and flirty with Leslie, she turned to mush. From the start, they were both very, very into one another and it moved quickly like everything else in this story. And remember, of the two sisters, Lana was the pretty one. Lana was the thin one. Lana was the popular one. But there was something about Leslie that was so seductive and so sensual that Philip Devine was immediately drawn to her, very attracted to her. Before long, their lives revolved around one another as if the rest of the world had just fallen away. Then one evening when Philip and Leslie were talking, she told him she confided in him that she had had a baby and she wanted to try to get custody of that baby. Remember, I told you a little while ago when she got pregnant and her mom arranged for a family member to take custody of the child because Leslie had been getting into so much trouble and in and out of the county jail, things of that sort. Yeah, she wanted that baby back. And Philip, he was on board with that. He absolutely wanted to help in any way that he could. And he said he would help raise her daughter too. They'd be a family. Philip was everything Leslie could have dreamed of having in a man. Unfortunately... Leslie had begun experiencing some medical issues while she was going through the Job Corps program and she was forced to leave. And that was right before the Thanksgiving holiday of 1993. She had had some residual abdominal discomfort related to an ectopic pregnancy. And it was hard for her to get through the classes. So the director of the Job Corps had no choice but to ask her to leave. The space was needed. The wait list to get in was and is lengthy. What made things even more devastating for Leslie is that she and Philip had become so inseparable. So the fact that she had to go back to Fall City just broke her heart. She became so despondent over it, feeling as though she wasn't going to make it in life without Philip. Again, like I said, things here moved along very quickly. She had only known this guy for like maybe a month, if that. No time wasted, but they had not yet consummated their relationship, which kind of surprised me, but I respect it. Either way, Leslie fell fast and hard for Philip and the feeling was mutual. And he assured her that he was with her. He swore I'm with you. She told him that she would come back to Denison and see him once it was time for winter break. She also wanted him to come to Fall City to spend the holidays with her. And he promised that he would, even though his family over in Fairfield, Iowa, wanted him home for the holidays, he was set on going to Fall City with Leslie. Philip did struggle a little bit with the fact that they were an interracial couple. Leslie was white and he was black. But whatever hangups he may have had about that dwindled over time. He was so in love with her and he wanted to marry her. He had big plans for the future. He wanted out of small town Iowa and he had a sight set on moving to Colorado Springs and he wanted Leslie and her daughter by his side. Their relationship progressed so quickly, but really they saw no reason to wait any longer for anything. Okay, dreamers, I'm going to go ahead and pause the story here. The next part of this will be the final part. And I think what I'm going to do next is give these lengthy multi-part stories a rest for a while and go back to doing the one-and-done episodes while I play catch-up on Patreon. I have cards and stickers that I need to mail out, and I have those keychains that I promised to a handful of patrons. I have the drawing for the copy of the Bad Blood book. That's for everybody, not just patrons. I'm also going to finish up the series we are currently on on Patreon and get back to the one-and-done episodes on there as well for a little bit. I don't know. We'll see. I like doing these deep dives and these multi-part episodes, but they've also been holding me up and they're taking me a long time to get them written and recorded. And I just really want to put out more content for all of you. But anyway, when we come back for the sixth and final part of the story, we're going to get to know Philip Devine a little bit more and we're going to get to what ultimately happened to him and Lisa and Brandon on New Year's Eve of 1993. I want to thank you all so much for listening. I'm your host, Roseanne, and until next time, sweet dreams.